Well, here we are in week number four of this series. Uh, we've been talking about the actual flood now. This will be week number three on the actual flood. We spent one week on before. And in fact, next week, we're going to kind of end this thing talking about what happened after the flood as it was ending after that one-year experience. So, But today, I, maybe this has been something that has been on your mind. We're going to divide this. We have a very tiny, short part here, and then we're going to move into a second part. But if you're like me, you have tried to figure out the whole dinosaur thing. Um, I've seen the movies. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> the dinosaurs were a little scary. Um, so we have questions. Yeah, <laughs> questions about those things. When were they around? How did they die? Things like that. Now we're just going to simply just kind of summarize this by just using at the moment this historical account that we find in Genesis to quickly answer some of these dinosaur questions. So uh, the first question. Did they exist? Well, yeah, of course they did. I mean, we, we find their bones. Um, and so, yeah, of course, we, we know that they were here. We know that dinosaurs yeah. were here. We know they were. So now the next question I would think would be, well, when were they here? And so I think we can answer that too using the historical account of Genesis and the kinds of dinosaurs, the ones speaking at this moment, specifically those that were on the land, we know that God created those on the sixth day when God created all the other land animals. Were dinosaurs on the ark? Okay, so... Um, we know that, uh, according to, again, according to the Genesis account, we know that all kinds of land animals were on the ark. Genesis chapter 6, verse 19 says, uh, bring a pair of every kind of animal, male and female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. So yeah. we know that uh, all land animals were on the ark. And we think to ourselves, was there room on the ark? Well, we, have, you know, we, we don't have in the account here, they were not limited to adult animals. So maybe they were a couple little baby T-Rexes there and, running and around. And we're speculating right, yeah, yeah, yeah. to some degrees because, I mean, let's be honest. Again, the, the account doesn't give us those details like yeah. we talked about last week. We've got kind of this big picture view, but we have very few details. So we've kind of got to look at it from a rational, mm -hmm. logical perspective. Yeah, and that phrase yeah. there, bring a pair of every kind right. of animal. A pair yeah. of every kind of animal. So the next question, well, then, uh, you know, they're not here now. Did they die in the flood? Um, well, the answer to that would also be yes. All of the land animals, all of them, including land dinosaurs, died in the flood. All of them, except for the ones that were on the ark. Everyone else, all the other land animals died in the flood. Uh, we're told that in verse uh, 22 of chapter 7 of Genesis, everything that breathed and lived on dry land died. And those massive uh, deaths created these giant bone beds, and really that kind of uh, is a, goes a little bit with what you talked about last week, Cole, because they're found now in those layers of mud that have turned to rock that uh, right. you can see right. evidence yeah. of those. It's, uh, if you're looking at it from a traditional viewpoint, it's called the there's something called the Cambrian explosion. That's what they call it, the Cambrian explosion. Uh -huh. All of a sudden, there were very few fossils, and then all of a sudden, you've got this great unconformity we talked about, and then all of a sudden, boom, you've got this explosion of, of fossils, this explosion of life. So the next question, um, what happened to the dinosaurs uh, from the ark after the flood? So why did we not meet a, you know, Tyrannosaurus Rex as we were driving into town today or as you we were coming to church this morning. Well, I mean, I, again, we're speculating. That's all we're doing. We're just uh, 
throwing out, again, this is a journey of possibility, a journey of plausibility. So uh, at some point, probably, apparently after the flood, early after the flood or possibly later, that new pair, that new population would have died. Uh, there's very good reasons for that. We know that following the flood, because, again, the geological geologic data supports this and just what we see uh, in, uh, in, in the world that we live in today, we know that following something of that level, of that catastrophic level, there would have been some climate change that would have taken place. There probably would have been an ice age after the flood. So, I mean, it's very possible they could have died there. It's possible that there would have been a change in vegetation. Uh, you think about it. I mean, the world was completely different following the flood. The flood changed it all. So change in vegetation, change in, uh, you know, just a different world. Maybe people just killed them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe they just died as a result of that. It's probably, you know, if I were on the ark as one of Noah's sons, uh -huh. I have a feeling. You probably wouldn't have gotten it. I <laughs> They being, wouldn't have given honest. me a ride. <laughs> would I would, I, I would have said, "Hey, bro," as they're letting all the animals off the ark. I'd have been, "Hey, bro, go whack those two baby T Rexes. <laughs> they're going to cause problems. They're going to cause some problems. And while you're at it, swap those two mosquitoes." So I was taught. I was taught. We knew that would get a good one. <laughs> Stuttgart's like, yeah. Um, yeah, because I mean, there it's man, mosquitoes are rough, you know. Uh, I got, I had. There's always that one that gets in the house at night, you know. And I had that one last night. If I it's in the house, it's not gonna get, get that Vanessa. Guy. But anyway, so I was taught, like we talked about last week. I was taught at school. I was taught in college that the Earth it's billions of years old. Um, but at the same time, here in church, as I was raised in church, I was taught in the beginning God. So I was taught these two very different worldviews, uh, and it was very difficult for me to hold these two worldviews hands. Because it was, it was confusing yeah. and it was difficult. Um, world, the world, the plants, the animals, Adam, you know, all of this stuff, we actually have a, a genealogy in the Bible. Yeah. We actually have a genealogy in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, and, and actually in the New Testament as well. We've got a, uh, some really good genealogies in Matthew and in Luke. From Jesus uh, From all Jesus the all way the way back. And so we've got these genealogies in the Bible, and they trace every generation back to Adam. And if you look at it, and you just kind of take a day as a day, a week as a week, a month as a month, a year as a year, you kind of come away with this idea that, according to the Bible, the earth, and again, we're to some degree speculating, but there's some pretty rational, logical uh, conclusions that we can come to that the earth may actually be as little as less than 10,000 years yeah. old. That's significant. It, it's very, it's a paradigm shift. From what we've been taught yeah, growing up. So and it's hard to accept. Right now you're probably sitting there going, Whoa. And, and that's okay because yeah. that's a paradigm shift from what right. we've been taught. It is. When you look at the layers, and one of the easy places to see that is at the Grand Canyon, so uh, McKinley's got a picture for us, so it'll be on the screen. Hang that on there just, for, uh, I think I've got it timed, so it's going to come off. But you see those layers, each one has millions and millions of years. So when you look at that, we're told that each of those layers, some of those layers being like 300 feet deep, some of them less, some even more than that, we're told each one of those represents millions, millions, hundreds of millions of years in order for those to build up. Now, Cole taught us last week, and he said, you know what? There is a possibility that those layers in the Grand Canyon were actually laid down, not over millions and millions of years, but actually over the course of the flood itself. 
They were laid down rapidly, very possibly, from giant mud flows during this global flood that Noah experienced. Now, he also said that was similar to what we have seen at Mount St. Helens. And we have, in our lifetime, most of us, seen that happen. And that would make sense to us to say, oh, yeah, 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 I see that. I see the, as you said last week, the comparison to the Grand Canyon from that. I see that. But I was taught at school that the Bible and science don't mesh. It's either one or the other. It's either a very old, billions of years old layer, slowly, slowly, billions of years by layer, or it's the Bible. And I was taught that science confirms that it's a very old earth. Well, I mean, most of us were taught that, without question. Most of us were taught that. And for many of us, for myself being at the very top of that list, it made it very difficult to reconcile science and the Bible. Because not only was I taught that, I, I was taught that with such, this is a fact. This is unquestioned. This is unmistakable. This is the way it happened. And to believe or anything other than this is, is total folly. And so it made it difficult for me, again, for me to reconcile these two worldviews that I found myself in, science and school over here, you know, in college and everything and, and all that, and then the Bible in the beginning, God. But the reality is there are actually many scientists, and, and these are reputable uh, scientists with PhDs from places like Harvard. I mean, so we're not just talking about some fly-by-night whack job that, that has, you know, right. just showed up and has a cool website called Bob's Website. You know, I mean, we're talking uh, a reputable PhD, PhD, some with their PhD from, from places like Harvard, who actually agree with the history recorded in the Bible. And they say that God actually did create everything, and it probably happened. We don't know because we weren't there, right. but it probably happened inside of a 10,000-year period. And they say that the very same facts uh, that some would look at and interpret as billions and billions and billions of years, well, we can actually interpret them as a much younger Earth. But then if you're like me, or if you've grown up like me, you might say, yeah, 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 okay, but I thought they've already proven that the earth is billions of years old. Because that's the way things are, are, are offered. That's right. the way we are taught. I mean, this is a proven fact. This is proven by the scientific method. Right. You know, we, we have hypothesized, and here we are. And I, I honestly, Cole, it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I actually, maybe I'm a slow learner than most, but that's when I began to discover, well, no, they really haven't actually proven that. It is simply... An idea. It is a theory that is taught as a fact. Now, we really shouldn't be surprised, though, because 2,000 years ago, Peter told us, he was the same Peter who followed Jesus, he wrote down, he told us that something like this was well, going to happen. Well, this is the scripture that I've really been looking forward to getting to the entire series. Uh, I almost threw it in there last week. And I didn't because I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to mess it up. But this is the the scripture, 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, we're going to start in verse 3. We're going to read several several verses and um again, you go to school, you go to college, you go to that geology class, you go to that life sciences class, you go to those different classes and you're just taught these things 100% unequivocal fact. This is the way it happened. 
And the only way to know that is one of two ways. Of course, you have to be there. You have to be able to prove it through the scientific method, right? You have to, you know, hypothesize and then develop an experiment. And then that experiment has to, by the way, be repeatable. And we're taught as if those two, one of those two qualifiers actually happen. And you're like, yeah. they're not. Yeah. It, it, that, that can't be. So why have we gotten to a point in 2020 where these things are taught unequivocally as fact? And we kind of have an idea why. Second Peter 3, starting in verse 3. Peter says, most importantly, I, remind, uh, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? What, where is he at? What happened? Um, f- uh, from, and I love this, from before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. That's what they're going to say. They're going to say something very similar to the processes that we see today have always been, you know, kind of like that thing we talked about last week, uniformitarianism, the present is the key to the past. They're going to say that things have always been the way they are today. Right. And he goes on in verse 5. He says, they deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command and he brought the earth out from the water. Uh, Amazing visual here, out from the water. Um, don't want to pause there and get sidetracked um, from his command uh, out of the earth from the water and surrounded it with water. Verse six, then, and here we are at the flood, then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And Peter is saying there will come a point in time where they deliberately forget all about that on purpose. And we really now kind of have a chain of events, a chain of people uh, that we kind of know when that began to happen, and it thus has fulfilled what Peter talked about. And and Peter not only said they're going to deliberately forget, he even gave us the method by which we were going to begin forgetting the present is the key to the past, uniformitarianism. That's going to be the catalyst, it's going to be the vehicle, if you will, that's going to take us in that direction. In the mid-1700s, um, so what was that, 300 so years ago, whatever, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not good at math, we talked about that a little bit ago, I'm not good at math. In the mid-1700s, a, a very popular French naturalist, which a naturalist is, at that time period, is, is what they would have called a scientist. They weren't called scientists, they were called naturalists. So a French naturalist uh, began, uh, he published a work that separated science from the history in the Bible. And this work was published, again, in the mid-1700s. And in that work, he suggested, and, and, and again, that word suggested, that's what it was. It was just suggested. It was theorized. It was hypothesized. He suggested that possibly the earth was formed when a comet collided with the sun, and it took about 75,000 years for it, it to cool down, and that kind of spurred this process that we now find ourselves kind of witnessing today that we we kind of go back and look at he said that's it's just a possibility this is a suggestion about how these things might have happened and and so really it's it's at that point where we really see kind of the beginning of this old earth idea beginning to take shape and beginning to become popular and it really started from a guess it started from a suggestion it started from a a hypothesis and and actually one there was no way for him to test that right that's and again we're taught it from the perspective of either personal observation or the scientific method, but you can't test it. It's not repeatable. So it's a suggestion. It's a 
This might have been the way this went down. Now you say to that, you say, okay, wait a second. I hear where you're coming from, and I get kind of the direction you guys are trying to go. But, I mean, the dating, the dating, the way we get our dates and the way we understand. Uh, right, I mean, there we go. The, the rock dating proves an immensely old age of the earth. It proves through radiocarbon dating and through, um, through these different radioactive, radioactive dating that we're going to talk about. It proves the old age of the earth. And we're going to get to that in yeah, a few minutes. We will. So uh, following this guy over here in the corner, there's two more notable oh, French naturalists. <laughs> there they are. They're <laughs> popping up right there by coal. These two guys, they joined in in saying that the earth was older and older. So they're beginning to join in. And no proof. No, these are just ideas. And next, after them, came a German mineralogist, mineralogist, Mineralogist. that doesn't roll off the tongue, and he increased it from very old to vast, deep geological ages. By the 1800s, almost all the scientists were committed to an old, deep age earth belief. And virtually all of them by that time, virtually, um, had abandoned the biblical history. And consciously, on purpose or otherwise, they were trying to explain creation right. without a Through creator. Through suggestion. Mm -hmm. uh, so kind of jumping from there, we go to the late, kind of the late 1700s, and there was a Scottish geologist, his name was James Hutton. Now James Hutton is interesting for a number of reasons. We don't have time, but he's not interested because we talked about the uh, great unconformity last week. James Hutton is actually the individual who kind of coined that, coined that yeah. term, great unconformity. The great, we really don't know what happened. <laughs> Something happened, we don't know what it was. Uh, but James Hutton, he just observed, much like you and I observe today, no different than anything that Harley could do or I could do. He just started observing. He said, you know, the land that we observe, that we see, that I see on a daily basis, it's being worn down very slowly being worn down very slowly. And the ocean sediments that we witness today, or his time, I should say, well, they're, they're building up very, very slowly. And so he kind of hypothesized. He said, he argued that the only, uh, the only these forces that, that can, can be seen currently, only the forces that can be seen currently in his lifetime should be used to explain Earth's history. He said, so since all of this stuff is happening very, very slowly, we're having erosion rates happening very, very slowly, we're having sediment, uh, ocean sediments being built up very, very, very slowly, he hypothesized, he said, hey, it's rational then to believe, to accept and to eventually become fact that the earth is inconceivably older than we originally thought in order for there to be enough time for this erosion to take place, for these sediments to build up, and for us to be able to see what we see, what we observe today, man, this earth must be inconceivably older than what we originally thought because it happens, these processes are so slow. Yeah. And now Hutton's views were taken up by, and taken further, actually, by a guy named Charles Lyell. And this was in the 1800s. 
Now, Charles Lyell, he insisted now in his writings and the papers he published that the very same processes of erosion and as uh, Cole mentioned, the sedimentation rates, how it takes so long to, to build a layer, um, the very same processes that we see today and for him in the 1800s are the very same rates that have always happened through all of Earth's history. They have operated just like that. And he summed it up with this very famous saying, the present is the key to the past. In other words, what's happening right now is the key to what happened at the very beginning in creation as the, as the earth formed and all that. He insisted and he made it very popular at that time in the 1800s to think that since the geological rates are so extremely slow today, they have always been extremely slow at that same rate. In fact, Cole talked about it last week. He said they are uniform today and they always have been. Now, was this data, was it, or I should say, was it data that drove these individuals to millions and millions and millions of years? Was it data? No, it wasn't. It wasn't data. They observed something, and then they hypothesized based on their thinking, based on their viewpoint, based on their perspective, their paradigm, right? Uh, their belief system. They made a hypothesis that was based on their belief system. I mean, you may be sitting there, you may be watching right now and say, well, yeah, but you're kind of doing the same thing. Yeah, you're kind of doing the same thing. You're, you're hypothesizing. Yeah, I wasn't there, and I can't test it. I can't prove it. I, you're right. I do have a historical account of it that I can go to, but it really wasn't data-driven. It was more, we have a viewpoint, we have a perspective, and we want what we believe to fit that perspective. And that allowed these individuals, again, two, three, four hundred years ago, to process the data that they collected or they saw, they observed from a very specific viewpoint. Um, and that viewpoint just happened to support what they thought to be true. Right. Now, Lyle's views became so popular that practically the entire geological community adopted those views and every generation from then till now has done the same. Lyle became uh, the teacher of one of the greatest influencers of today, someone you have heard of. Lyle taught Charles Darwin. Here's a picture of him. There we go. And now, for all the uh, ages of the earth, since we go back to right over there, that first guy there by Cole, um, we are now into the hundreds of millions and billions of years. After, um, I mean, <laughs> it's amazing to think that an entire, at the end of the day, belief system, because again, it, it's, it's not provable and it wasn't observed, an entire belief system that is accepted as 100% unequivocal fact, actually began more as a suggestion of something that was observed. And 1,800 years before Hutton and Lyle published their works and kind of began <laughs> this process... Peter published his. Peter published his. <laughs> Peter told us that that's exactly how this thing's going to go down, 1,800 years before it happened. Again, in Second Peter chapter 3, and we're in verse 4 now, he says, They will say, 
From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world first was created. Uniformitarianism. The present is the key to the past. It's always been the way we see it today. Verse 5, they deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out, out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And so they did. And so the majority of us are still taught that today. Yeah. You know, the Bible, though, gives us a hint. It gives us a hint that perhaps the geological rates have not always been the same. They have not always been, perhaps, uniform. It, it reveals to us, the Bible does, that the history of the world has these moments where things are not uniform. They're not life as normal. And primarily, in the Bible, we see that happens at creation, and that happens at the flood. So, the present is not perhaps the key to the past, but the catastrophic event is the key to right, the past. Right, like exactly what we saw like last week, 17 seconds before 8.32 a.m. on May 18, 1980 at Mount St. Helens erupts and completely changes on a micro scale, totally changes everything. And the rates were totally changed. And, yeah. and so we, we actually have seen this in our lifetimes, or y'all's lifetimes. I wasn't alive. I'm not that old. But uh, you are. So, uh, hey, so my, hey I, I don't know where it is, but my, when my dad came, uh, he had a meeting or something over there that year, later really? that year, and he brought us home. A, a bottle of ashes from Mount St. Helens. I don't know where it is. That would have been awesome. Uh, so Peter's message that we just read, it, it's sobering. It, it is sobering. It's a sobering message that rebellious people, rebel, rebellious men and women, in defiance of God, are going to basically reject any type of biblical historical truth because quite simply, we don't want to accept and we do not want to admit that one day we're going to have to give account to a creator for everything that we did during our lifetimes. Yeah. And by removing that creator, well, now you've kind of removed the truth. You've removed any right versus wrong. Right. How convenient. Yeah, it's pretty easy. You know, a hundred years before there was any rock dating technology... Um, and I'm going to call that a theory, a rock dating theory, before that was introduced, a hundred years before that was introduced, almost the entire world of science was already committed to an unimaginably old earth before there was ever any theory of a way to possibly date anything they were committed to it. And that is why you knowing about how that progressed, that's why we put those men's pictures up here and we talked about them. It's important for you to know that because they already believed from their thinking that the earth was millions and millions or billions of years old. And that is so important because all of the dating methods that are around today, all of them, they have some assumptions that they're making. And those, because we weren't there, those assumptions must be true. All of the assumptions they're making must be true in order for those dates 
to be reliable. And, and we've, there are uh, several assumptions. We're only actually going to focus on three. Um, because among those assumptions that you have to make from the beginning to be able to begin this process of radioactive dating in rocks um, is that the present decay rates that we see today have always been. Again, uniformitarianism, presence key of the past, always been the same way. So we have to make that assumption that the present decay rate that we see today has always been. But there's a problem with that. There's a problem with that assumption. None of us were alive 6,000 years ago, much less billions and billions of years ago. So we can't know that. Right. And we're not talking about easy to make assumptions here. These are some critical assumptions. Now, in 2005, there was an eight-year-long study, and they published it at the end of that eight years, and the data supports a theory that they had that there were some moments of accelerated decay during parts of our Earth's history. Therefore, here's what that means, the dates that were given could be millions and billions of years younger than what the dating methods have assumed. It's interesting how that is not presented. Presented. I don't even want to use the word taught. Yeah. It's just not presented. It's not presented. Yeah, it's not presented. The only way to get a date using any of the dating methods that are available today, they assume some things to be true. And as Cole said, the problem with that, well, we were not there. We weren't there to experience, to see that those assumptions are right. So we're just going to jump in real quickly, and we're going to jump into our textbooks. The textbooks that we've all, um, you know, we've all studied, we've all uh, we all learned from, and we're going to take a look at the dates that all of our textbooks tell us that they went from a mere possibility to very quickly a, this is a probably how it happened, to now our textbooks tell us this is it. This yeah. is unequivocally fact. Yeah. Now, to help, kind of help us with this example, we're going to use this hourglass here. Um, this is actually a 30-minute glass, but we're going to call it. That when we're we're going to call it an hourglass. Um, this hourglass, uh, you know, we could time this with uh, because we have available very accurate, technologically accurate, accurate clocks today. So we could time this and confirm. Let's call it an hourglass. That this is one hour. All right, so this is going to be our example. So if we were to walk into a room and find this hourglass, you walk into here, nobody was around, and you see this, and let's say it's about halfway, then you could assume that it's been one half hour. It's been running for a half hour. A half hour has passed if you saw it about halfway. Now, that's an assumption based upon what we are seeing right now, but the reality is we don't really know, though. I mean, we, have no, we weren't here before that, so we have no idea if somebody had this laying on its side for an hour or two days or a week. 
we have no idea. We weren't here, and then they set it up and walked out of the room. We have no idea. Oh, we almost had uh, a collision. We almost had some parent elements going everywhere. Yes, we did. (laughs) We'll get to that in a minute. Um, But this, we have no idea. We weren't here to see. All we know is what we see, which is half of it is gone. There's half up here and half down here. That's all, that's all we see. We don't really know. We can only assume that 30 minutes of time have passed. We don't know what happened before we got into this room when we see it. We know that that's 30 minutes. We could measure it and know, yes, that there's 30 minutes here that's off the clock of this hourglass because we can measure it against very, uh, a very accurate clock today. Right. So, um, rock... Believe it or not, it's actually very interesting. Uh, if you have any, you, you may be like, yeah, it's interesting to throw it through a window or something. <laughs> it's, I, a rock. It, it's very interesting because rock has some radioactive elements inside of it. This one right here does. This one right here does. They all do. They have radioactive elements inside of them. And those radioactive elements that are inside of all rock, they are called parent elements. And they are some of those elements, if you were to look at the element chart, they're, they're going to be up there yeah, yeah. listed right. in that. So we have these. these parent elements, these radioactive elements inside of every single rock. So let's call the sand that's in the top of our hourglass, half hourglass, in, in, our, in our hourglass here, we can call those parent elements, okay? Um, and those parent elements over the course of time, as time goes on in a rock, and in our example here with our hourglass, over the course of time, these elements will actually transform these parent elements will begin to decay. And they will decay into a different element. And, and we know which elements become, one element becomes a different element. We, we know, um, for instance, that uh, uranium, we know that uranium, a parent element, we know because we have hypothesized, we have experimented, we have tested, and we have repeated. We know that uranium, the parent element, becomes lead. And that is known as a daughter element. The parent element over time decays and becomes a daughter element. We know that. We know that that happens. Um, And these different elements, like I said, they're called daughter elements. And so let's just say that as they change from parent element at the top, as they drop down here to the bottom, what you see here at the bottom, that's your daughter element. So that'd be like uranium to lead. Yeah. Okay. Great. So here we have now scientists who have studied this process, as Cole said, and they know of the difference. There's four main clocks. Here's one, two, three, four. Um, there's four, and each one has a different element parent that element, parent element, element that becomes a different daughter element. And so they know the rates of each one of these. And they know how long it takes it to decay. So all of these clocks should be ticking pretty close together, even if they, they use whatever you know, element they can find in here. Some, some rocks they can find three, some two, some all four. That's how they do it. So they kind of know what's going on. They know how long it takes for that change to happen from parent to daughter. And so go ahead. So, so in essence, what you're describing, what we're trying to describe is this process of rock dating. This is how they do it. This is how they date rocks. Right. And so to get to the age, they have to know how many daughter elements are inside this rock, how many have changed, how many are there. They have to know how many 
uh, parent elements are there, and then they they work the math, and from that they come up with an age. And it sounds awesome. I mean, that sounds so. I mean, even me, who who I am far from intelligent, I can understand that. I can understand that if there is X amount of parent elements, there is Y amount of daughter elements, and Z is the amount of time it takes for them to change, then I can do a little quick math, you know, plug, take a formula, plug some numbers in, and I can figure out this rock is B years old. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. And honestly, no one really argues with their ability to, to look. The, no. the, the instruments are so sophisticated mm-hmm. No one argues really with their ability to count how many's here and how many's here and, and to do that math. math. I mean, that, that, is, that is scientific fact. We, we, we're not arguing that at all because that's really cool. But there is some problems with each of these four radio, uh, radio dating methods. Yeah. There's some problems because there are assumptions that have to be made. All we know today, what's today, the 24th? 3rd? 23rd. August 23rd, 2020. All we know today is what we observe today. That's it. Um, or in our lifetime. Or in our lifetime. That's right. We have no clue about this rock when it was formed. We weren't there. We weren't there. I have no idea what this rock was made up of. Um, so in order to fill in all that's needed, all the information that's needed, and for the math formula to work out, we have to make some assumptions about the past. So you remember like when you were in school, and, and it's specifically math class, and you would get that question, and then there would be those five, you know, you'd have A, B, C, and D. If you're in school right now, you're going to get this, I think. You have A, B, C, and D, and you have no clue, but you can kind of get pretty close, but there's always that D, right? And it's either all of the above, none of the above, <laughs> or in math, there's not enough information to sufficiently answer the question. Those killed me. Because, I mean, but that's basically what we're saying. There's, there's not enough information to sufficient, sufficiently finish the formula. So assumption one is that has to be made. Even though we weren't present when the rock became a rock. Whenever that was. Fill in the blank. When, even though we weren't present... We can know beyond a shadow of doubt what the questions were, or excuse me, what the conditions were, what they were like as the rock clock ticked its first second. We can know without question that it started with zero daughter elements. And we can know for a fact that it started with, fill in the blank, of parent elements. We have to assume that this environment is static. Yeah. It's consistent. It's closed. Yeah. We have to assume. We, we know that was zero. Now, here's the problem. We weren't there to know that it was zero. We weren't there. For example, when a sample of the lava from Mount St. Helens that was observed to have uh, formed and cooled in 1986, that's when it happened. It's no doubt. 1986, when that happened, in 1996, they took a sample of that and they tested it and it contained so much of the daughter elements down here that they calculated an age of 350,000 years for that rock. That's what it was dated. They didn't tell them where they got it. They just wanted a date. That's, what, that's the year they gave them. 
And they knew for a fact in 1996 that that rock was only 10 years old. Now, to date that rock, they assumed that it had no daughter elements to start with, but the reality is they were wrong. So, uh, again, any, if you're a scientist, you can't just take one example and run with it and say, that proves it. No, you've got to repeat it, man. That experiment has to be repeatable. So that's what they did. They, they, they repeated that same experiment. They went overseas to lava flows on, on the sides of a volcano in New Zealand that they knew beyond a shadow of doubt 100% was less than 50 years old. They did the same thing. They sent it in. They said, we want an age. How old is this rock? 50 years old is, is, is how old they knew the rock was. The radioactive dating gave an age of 3.5 million years, and it couldn't have been. Again, because the test assumed something about the rock. It assumed that it had zero of the daughter elements. Again, if you want the one that I always remember is um, the uranium to lead. It assumed there was no lead in the beginning. And so since there was this amount of lead, and it came from this uranium, then... It has to be 3.5 million years, even though we knew it was 50. So it's logical, I think, I would like to think, my understanding of logical, it's logical to conclude that if recent lava flows of a known age, because we were there to observe them, if recent lava flows of a known age yield incorrect old ages due to the extra daughter elements that they inherited from that erupting volcano, then is it logical to Again, hypothesize to think it is plausible, it is possible that the ancient lava flows of unknown ages, that we have no clue how old they are. They could be a thousand. They, we have no idea. Is it possible that they, like what we just talked about, could have inherited extra daughter elements as well? And they, too, have yielded excessively old Ages. And it, call that makes so much sense to me to think of it from that perspective. If the ones where we know the ages and they're wrong about their dating, what does that say about the ones we don't know? I, that to me, that's just almost an exclamation point in what we're talking about. It today. certainly opens up the avenue of possibility. Uh, possibility. It if certainly that's, does yeah, that. That that's it our goal. Certainly does that. In one study. They only took rocks where they knew the age of every rock they tested, and in every case, those rocks came back with ages of hundreds of thousands to billions of years old. How in the world can we say that the date is accurate when every case of testing rocks where we know every case of te every case of testing rocks where we know the age, it comes back with a very ancient, deep, time, old rock age. The tested dates are only true if the assumptions are always true. And assuming, in this case, that a rock is starting with no daughter elements, it's, it's not a true assumption. It's okay, so our, so our second assumption, our, our second example, if you will, there are four, like we've already talked about, there's four main uh, radioactive clocks. We have, we have kind of our examples up here. You have four main radioactive clocks, so four main parent element to daughter element, 
four different times uh, to test these different rock samples. And each one tests, like I said, it, it tests a different radioactive element. And in one section of the Grand Canyon, which we've got some awesome pictures for next week that we're going to get to show you guys. Um, in one section of the Grand Canyon, there, there's a rock from a lava flow at the top of the Grand Canyon. And in that very same section of the Grand Canyon, there happens to be another one. Another lava flow. Another lava flow um, at the bottom. Okay, so there's one at the top, one at the bottom. Now, obviously, it makes a lot of sense. The layer at the top is going to be younger than the layer at the bottom. Well, <laughs> that's not what we find out. But let's talk about clock number one. So we'll call this clock number one. Clock number one gives that layer at the top an age. Clock number one's tell us we need to speed up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it gives us an age, and it says that layer at the top. Is that where we are, the layer at the top? Clock one, yeah. Clock one. Top. The layer at the top gives us an age of a million years. All right? That's clock number one. So when they, when they tested... For that specific element. For that element, specific one, it was a million-year-old. Clock number two is testing the same rock, the same rock with a different element, and that different element gives an age of 1.1 billion years old. That's clock one and clock same two. Same rock. Same rock. And now they're, they're, they're testing, and the, the rates should be the same of the decay of those elements based upon that element. They certainly be close. They should be close at least. But here we have a million, and here we have one over a thousand times longer. We have... 1.1 billion. Now, let's make this just a little bit worse because Cole mentioned there's a layer at the top and there's a layer all the way at the bottom. And the layer at the bottom, the clock number two said that layer at the top, look at there, is 1.1 billion years old. Clock number two also said the layer at the very bottom, which should be older, clock two also said that layer at the top and the one at the bottom is also 1.1 billion years old. Now, if the earth is billions of years old, and it takes millions and millions or billions of years to form each of those layers, then how can the one at the bottom be the very same age as the one at the top. We have no idea how many daughter elements were inside of the rock to begin with. We just can't know. We have to assume. And we can't assume that we know. We can't assume um, that we know something that is so critical. And if we can't assume that we know, can we use radioactive dating methods to get a date? I mean, I think that really is the crux of the conversation. If we can't make this assumption and come up with anything closer than 1 million to 1.1 billion, can we really rely on this radioactive dating method to get an accurate date? Because we have to assume that we know in order for it to work. The age range of the four main dating methods that Harley was just talking about, they dated the very same rock, one singular rock at the top, that top lava flow. The first dating method, as Harley said, dated it at one million years. I hold it. You hold it? The second dating method, I'll put it right there. I like that. That was cool. 1.1 billion years. Same rock, 
different dating methods. The third dating method said, no, 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 no. no y'all both have it wrong. It's actually, can you put that up there? Mm -hmm. 900 million years old. So, rock one. One million. Mm -mm, no, no, no. They said, no, 1.1 billion. Then the next one, the next dating method said, no, 900 million. And then the last one, the fourth uh, method, and there's only four, so the fourth radioactive dating method said that the very same rock, no, no, it's 2.6 billion years old. Which one's right? I mean, we're talking, again, listen, I'm not trying to change anybody's mind. I'm really not. I, I, we're just offering up, offering up plausibility and possibility. Yeah. Just showing some holes in arguments that kind of get glossed over and we kind of ignore. Um, if it were, oh, heck, if it were a million years difference between the three, we're about to lose them. If we were a million <laughs> years different between the three, I, I may would even go, oh, okay, maybe. But we're talking a difference between two and a half billion years. Yeah. I mean, that's significant. <laughs> yeah, it is. Now, that's just assumption number one we've right. been talking about. And we just, uh, we're kind of buying some time to even discuss that. Here's assumption number two. And it has to be true in order for this to work. We assume that this is a closed system. That there, because it's a rock, it looks pretty solid, pretty closed to me. It's a, we have to assume it's a closed system that no parent, no parent and no daughter elements um, have been added after the rock was formed. And when that rock ticked its first second of, hey, I'm a rock. <laughs> now, <laughs> since it became a rock, that's, hey, that's the scientist in me right there. <laughs> since it became a number of parent or to say that nothing has interfered with the number of parent or daughter elements. And there's a problem. <laughs> yeah. There's a huge problem in this. Um, <laughs> hey, I'm a rock. <laughs> I'm a rock. Hello, baby. That's what I thought. Of. Yeah, frog. And anyway, okay, we're, we got to speed up. Okay, uh, sorry. We weren't there, first of all. We weren't there for the full life of the rock to know that nothing interfered. So we do not no, the, the problems with this assumption are even admitted in textbooks. Uh, textbooks even say, eh, you know, we may have a problem here. This one, we got to make a pretty big assumption uh, for us to use these four methods. With this hourglass, this is a sealed, closed system. Nothing's getting in and nothing is getting out from the moment that it was created. From the moment that it came off of the assembly line, it is closed. Um, that's not the case for rocks. Rocks are not a closed system. I mean, they may look, they may look like a closed system, right? So like, you know, if I took this rock and threw it out there and happened to hit one of you guys, it would hurt. It would <laughs> knock you out if it hit you in the right spot. It might kill you. I don't know. But we look at a rock and we think, yeah, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty solid, you know? Right. The chemistry of a rock, it's contaminated. It's interfered with constantly. And this is known. And this is a known scientific fact. As soon as it is formed, as soon as it is created, if it ticks to one, like you said, the first second, it's interfered with. Its chemistry is interfered with. It's been proven. It's interfered with by rainwater. I mean, it looks like nothing's getting in there, but we know that rainwater filters through rocks from above and, and magna, uh, mag, mag, magma. Mag, magma. Magma. <laughs> we know that it filters from underneath, and we know that the chemistry... Of these rocks, we know they've changed. Yeah. So here's an example. 
Um, we've already mentioned a less than 50-year-old rock from a lava flow in New Zealand. And if you, when they dated it, it yielded an age. We knew it was 3 million years from one clock. We knew it was 50, less than 50 years old. And then another clock gave it an age of uh, 197 million years, and a third clock, this one only had enough elements to do three of the timing, uh, radioactive timing test, and a third one said that it was 3.9 billion years old. That's how much element decay had and happened. And that's okay, because you making the assumptions that are made if we eliminate those assumptions and we simply look at the science for what the science is of parent to daughter and the amount of time it takes and all of those pieces of information, those years, the way they came up with them would have been accurate because rocks are an open system. And they're assuming it's not. Because they're assuming that it's not. The rocks are an open system. Um, additional radioactive elements for one of those testing methods would have been added. Um, they, it would have been contaminated. Uh, you would have received more of this element, and it would have received less of this element, and, and it would have had more daughter elements of this one. And so it really makes a lot of sense that using the science would give you such a huge difference in ages that a less than 50-year-old rock was tested to be almost 4 billion years old in some cases. I mean, it, it yes. makes sense. And, I, and here's where we're going with this. If the ages are always of known rock, known rock ages, if they are always drastically wrong with the rock where we know the age, how in the world can we trust the methods to give us accurate information for rocks where we don't know right. the age? And so assumption number three, very quickly, assumption number three, and the three huge ones, but assumption number three is this, that the same slow rate, back to uniformitarianism, the same slow rate of changing from parent element to daughter element um, that, that we see are the same rates since that rock was formed and the rock clock started millions or billions of years ago. But the problem with that is, again, we weren't there. We do not know that to be fact, so we have to make that assumption. All right, one more example. Uh, a New Mexico granite, this is actually a granite too, I believe. Um, a, a, a New Mexico granite was tested uh, with one of the radioactive uh, clocks. And so the parent, uranium, becomes the daughter lead. And that process of the test gave an age of 1.5 billion years. Now, there's another testing method that we haven't talked about, and it is the helium test, because when uranium uh, decays and becomes lead, it produces this side element called helium. And they can count how much helium is in there as, it in, as it's added up, and they can take that helium count and they can get a date from that. The rock that dated from the uranium to lead decay was one, it, it was 1.5 billion, but when they counted the helium, it gave an age of 6,000 years. So, wow. So how could that be? How could that I be? I mean, how could it be that a 1.5 billion year old rock, uh, according to radioactive decay, how could that have happened in 6,000 years? How, how could that be? Well, it, it could only happen 
if the radioactive decay rates that we are assuming have always been the same since the beginning of this rock's life, it could only happen if those decay rates at some point over the course of 6,000 years, at some point, if those radioactive decay rates were sped up significantly. So here's, here's what we need to know. The dates that I was given in that sophomore, junior level geology class that were taught as without question, these are facts, as we're on this journey of possibility, they're not all that reliable. They're, they're really not. They're not um, reliable because any one of these three assumptions, and there are several more, but any one of these three assumptions that we've talked about is enough to make a very young rock actually seem billions and billions of years old. But the conventional system has committed themselves to deep time because it fits their belief system. No matter what assumptions have to be made about that process, that's okay because the end result is if they can make those assumptions, the dates work out to be a very, very right. old earth. And, and, and that's, again, back to that original point, that's what we've been taught as scientific fact. But in fact, it's a theory. It, it is a suggestion. It's something that just began as a suggestion in the middle of the 18th century. And kind of grew from there, and now we have created this system that makes assumptions, shows them as fact, and can prove these suggestions billions and billions of years. The age testing only works if three very critical assumptions are made. And they're assumptions which I don't know you can make if you want accurate dating. Yeah, so this is where we end this morning. Again, the purpose of this series is not to argue, but it's to look at the very same facts, but instead of through the lens and belief system of very old, through the lens and belief system of the Bible, and say, okay, I see how that's possible. I, I don't have to choose between science and the Bible. My friends, God is not afraid of science. It's not going to ever prove he's wrong or he doesn't exist. God is not afraid of science. Science, physics, the principles of mathematics, and he created all belongs to God. It is his. He created and he created them. And they all eventually point to him. So very simply, as we finish today, here's what we're going to ask you to do as the next step for this week. Will you simply this week take a piece of paper at home and will you write down those verses word for word out of whatever translation you like to use of the Bible, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. Will you just simply write that down? And here's what we want you to do. Over the course of the week, between now and next Sunday, will you several times read through that and just simply talk to God about that this week? And then come back next week for the big finish. Now I'm going to pray for us. We're going to do two songs, and then we're going to pray for you again and, and send everybody home. 
But I just feel like those two songs we're going to sing today are so important. Because we are worshiping God, the creator of life and all, and the sustainer of life. Let's pray. God, as we talk with you this week about what Peter instructed, uh, what you, God, instructed Peter to write, I pray that you will speak to our hearts. Remind us, God, that you are creator and you are savior of this world. And may we trust and follow you, Jesus. And it is in your name, Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen.